What is a Christian worldview? That's a good question. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Church Questions, a place where listeners like you can ask questions about theology, history, leadership, church culture, or anything else having to do with successful Christian living in today's world. I'm your host, Pastor Don McKegg. Today's question, what is a Christian worldview? The first time I was ever introduced to the idea of a worldview and what it is and that there are different worldviews was back when I was pursuing my undergrad and I had a poor professor who had the unenviable task of trying to ram through my thick skull what is a worldview? Not even just a Christian worldview, but a worldview in general. And this lady was awesome. I mean, she is awesome. She was a missionary to Kazakhstan for like 20-something years. Didn't just have the boots-on-the-ground experience of being a missionary, but was highly informed on the philosophy and techniques of being a successful missionary. And what she was trying to teach us, the, her students, was the concept that worldviews, and we'll dive into definitions of all of this, but they're flexible depending on things like what country you're from and what religion you happen to believe in. And as a missionary, whether you just go short term, term or long term, if you go and live in another country with another culture and the predominant religion of that country is different than your own, there will be a clash of worldviews that as a missionary you need to be aware of. And it took me like an embarrassingly long amount of time before I finally started to figure out what a worldview is, but I did get there. And as a result of earning this knowledge, it is something that I enjoy talking about. It's something that I think affects the church quite a bit more than we might realize or give credit to. Uh, so we will be enjoy looking at what is a worldview and what is a Christian worldview. Before we jump into that, though, I want to bring up some statistics that I find particularly interesting about Christian worldview. Roughly 15 years ago, the famed Barna Research Group did a national survey and found that only 4% of the nation has a Christian worldview. They specifically worded it as biblical worldview, but those are interchangeable terms, and you'll probably hear me use both of those terms throughout this podcast. Only 4% of the nation has a biblical worldview. Now, this was 15 years ago, but I have to imagine that 15 years hasn't changed things all that much. If anything, probably the number is a smidge lower. Now, I get it. I get it. Some of you are thinking, well, Pastor Don, there are a lot of people in this country that say that they're Christian, but they're part of some denomination that isn't really Christian, and they're not this, and they're not that. I get where you're coming from. Can't say that I agree, but I understand your objection, so here's this statistic as well. Only 9% of confessed born-again believers have a Christian worldview. See, this is kind of one of those instances where it doesn't matter how you slice the pie, it's a really small piece of pie. Why this is particularly concerning for those of us that are 
caring about these things, is that other surveys have shown that around 80%, of the nation considers themselves Christian. Well, now we have a disparity of statistics. 80% of us say that we're Christians, but only 4% of us view the world as a Christian should. Well, I feel as though, with my public school math, that that's a pretty big gap. I feel comfortable saying that. And what that also tells me is the majority of you listening to this podcast do not actually have a Christian worldview. So as we get into the meat of what is a Christian worldview, a part of my job as a pastor that cares about you is to talk through what it is to have a Christian worldview from the perspective of, if you are a Christian, I'm hoping that I can convince you to start seeing things in a more biblical way. Before we get into a Christian worldview, though, let's actually discuss what is a worldview in general. A worldview is a particular philosophy of life or conception of the world. It's a framework we use to make sense of life and our surroundings. The idea is this. If we think of events going on in our life, whether it's something that we are personally experiencing in our family, in our job, in our church, whether it's something happening on a citywide, statewide, national level, worldwide level, everything that we are experiencing we can think of is a kind of data point. It's data coming into our life. What we need to decide with all of these things is if it is good or bad. Is it dangerous? Is it safe? Is it productive? Is it helpful? Is it destructive? Is it unhelpful? The way that we wade through all of that information to decide if something that has happened to us or information that we have gained is good or bad for us is our worldview. It's the filtering system that we use to start categorizing if things are good or bad for us. Depending on our worldview, we will see something is either good or bad or neutral. David Noble wrote a book called Understanding the Times, and this is how he defined it. It's an ideology, philosophy, theology, movement, or religion that provides an overarching approach to understanding God, the world, and man's relationship to God and the world. I like particularly about this definition the overarching approach. A worldview is an overarching philosophy that we use to sort through the information in our life. Depending on our worldview will will define for us if things are good or bad for us or neutral for us. So a personal worldview then, not in general terms, but a personal worldview is a combination of all you believe to be true and what you believe becomes the driving force behind every emotion, decision, and action. So worldview is how we create our belief system. And from our belief system, as we are wading through the things happening in our lives, we will decide if this is a good emotion thing, a bad emotion thing. We will start making decisions based around what we believe to be best. And those decisions will turn into actions. Let me give you an example. Examples are usually helpful with this kind of thing. We're going to contrast two worldviews. One is a Christian worldview. I know we haven't dived into yet what Christian worldview is, but I think this will help us understand worldview, and then we'll jump into Christian worldview. The two worldviews we're going to look at is secular relative truth, 
which truth is relative. Your truth is different than my truth, but that's okay because they're equal. There's no absolute truth that we are weighing our truths against to see which is better or which is right. You do you, I do me in the Christian worldview. So here's an example of something that the secular relative truth might say. This is something that you've actually heard. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. This is a philosophy point from secular relative truth. Now, this sounds lovely, doesn't it? Particularly if you are the beauty that wants to have an eye behold you. We love the idea that it doesn't matter about whether we're looking good today or whether we've let ourselves go. Somebody somewhere is going to think that we are beautiful. Now, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. This is a secular relative truth talking point. And here's where things start to get a little destructive. It's not so much in hoping that, you know, no matter how old and wrinkly we get, our spouse is always going to think we're hot. That's not necessarily the application to this. The application to this, how people and proponents of the secular relative truth worldview want you to use it, is it doesn't matter if you think something is beautiful, if somebody else thinks it's beautiful— it has been validated. It doesn't matter if on your terms it is vulgar. If they think it's beautiful, then they get to enjoy it. It doesn't matter if it's perverse or destructive or violent or predatory. If somebody out there thinks that it's beautiful, then we have to leave it alone because beauty is in the eye of the beholder. While I'm looking at our culture really starting to embrace at an unprecedented level in our nation at least ideas like violence against women being something beautiful in some people's eyes i would want to speak out against that and say quit committing violence against women but beauty's in the eye of the beholder i think it's a beautiful thing to be violent towards women so don't don't tell me to stop we're also seeing this in regards to children predatory predatory behavior towards children. Don't tell me that falling in love with a 10-year-old is perverse and predatory. I think the relationship is beautiful. So I get to participate in it. You don't get to tell me. And I could continue to go on and on and on with these examples where the fact that beauty now has no standard is an excuse that Really, anything can be classified as beautiful, and if everything is classified as beautiful, then even those vulgar, perverse, predatory, dangerous, violent things are called beautiful in some people's eyes. Those of us that know better can't stand up with a good argument because secular relative truth worldview has defended the idea. The Christian worldview, in contrast, would say something that, like, beauty comes from God and reflects His nature. How do we define beauty then? It has come from God, and it reflects his nature. Well, let's start looking now back at this example of violence against women. Well, God does, is not a proponent of violence against women, and that is not something that reflects his nature. Therefore, that's not beautiful. Taking advantage of the innocence of a child, that's not something that's beautiful. That doesn't reflect God's nature or come from God. Therefore, it's not beautiful, and we can speak out against it. So this is an example I get. It's maybe a, 
a big time overarching dive into the nitty gritty of culture kind of an example. I get that. But I think you now start to understand the importance of where a worldview sits in a person's life. Wherever the worldview is pointing starts to dictate our beliefs, our actions, and the decisions that we make about things. So worldview is crucial in the way that we look at the world and interact with other people. What's a Christian worldview then? What's a biblical worldview? This is going to shock you, but a biblical worldview is a worldview that is derived from the Bible. I know. I know that's deep. Let it settle in. A worldview that is a Christian worldview is one that is derived from Scripture. Here's what that means. It is the Bible that informs how we think about the things that we think about. This seems like kind of a no-brainer situation. And really it is. This is one of those fundamental things. I like to talk about fundamentals. This is a very fundamental thought, but we begin to see that not everybody adheres to these fundamental thoughts in all areas of life because we are trying to create a system of thinking that helps us wade through every area of life. Here are some examples. Have you gone to Scripture first to think about how you're supposed to relate to something like voting. Let's not even dive into who you're voting for, just the idea of voting. Do you vote because it's the American thing to do? Do you vote because that's what a patriotic citizen does? Or do you vote because you have something in Scripture pointing you to that direction? Do you withstain from voting if you withstain because you have something in Scripture justifying or telling you or giving you the conclusion to withstain, or have you just done it because you feel like that's the best expression that you have as a as an American citizen or as a an individual within the country? So are we looking to Scripture to inform us first, or are we looking to people in our lives that talk about voting, our civics class or government class talking about voting. What is the source that has given us the information we need to how we interact with voting? Here's another example. How do you approach disciplining your children? Do you do it by a biblical means? Do you just react out of your own emotions? Do you do what your parents did? Did you read a child psychology book that's not rooted in Scripture? Why do you think about disciplining your children or not disciplining your children what is the reason behind that? Is it from Scripture, or is it from another source? There's all kinds of social issues going on right now that we could look to Scripture to help us and be informed on. Things like welfare, health care, health care for everybody, the death penalty, whether or not we should go to war, how we uh, deal with people immigrating into the country. All of these are social issues and every pol political side has a talking point according to it, but what does the Bible say? Do you know? Do you have opinions on these things based on Scripture, or do you have opinions based on these things uh, from other sources? So the Christian and the or the biblical worldview is a worldview that is first coming from Scripture. Do you have a verse to stand on? Do you have a scriptural idea to justify? Where are you drawing your conclusions, and is it from Scripture? Well, let's take that then and move to the actual questions that the Barna Group asked when they did their national survey to see who has a Christian worldview, let's look at those eight 
questions and start to stack up where we are in the spectrum. Do we fall in the the 4% or do we fall in the 96%? Here are the eight questions, and then we'll go into them a little bit. Number one, does absolute moral truth exist? Number two, is absolute moral truth defined by the Bible? Number three, did Jesus Christ live a sinless life? Number four, is God the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe, and does he still rule it today? Number five, is salvation a gift from God that cannot be earned? Number six, is Satan real? Seven, does a Christian have a responsibility to share his or her faith in Christ with other people? And number eight, is the Bible accurate in all of its teachings? That the Barna group asked, and here's the idea. You're supposed to be able to say yes to every single one of those. Did you say yes to all eight of them with confidence? Because if you did then I would say that you probably have a Christian worldview. If you didn't say yes to all of them, even just one, you're not quite there yet because every single one of these ideas is affirmed in Scripture. And I don't want to spend too much time here, but I can't make a claim like that with at least addressing how all of these are rooted in Scriptural. So let's go through them. Number one and number two. Does absolute moral truth exist, and is it defined by the Bible? Absolutely. This is one of the major themes of Scripture, that there is one God, creator of all. He sits as king and judge over his creation. He has issued a set of laws that are an expectation for all people to live by. If you break those laws, you are a sinner or a criminal, and the punishment for your crime is eternal death unless... You confess the one Savior, Jesus, as your Lord, and then those sins are forgiven, and you are given eternal life. I get that that's a very short summary, but the idea is there is one God, one set of laws. If you break them, there is only one way out of it. This is an absolute truth. There is no other way to salvation. There is no other way in which we can overcome our crimes and sins against God. There is no other way other than through Christ. There there are not multiple roads to the same heaven. There are not multiple gods that we can all worship. There is one God, one law, one Savior, one road to salvation. That's the moral truth. That is the moral truth defined by Scripture. And this, really, I would say, is the flaw in the secular relative truth worldview, and the idea is that their viewpoint of being saved and my viewpoint of being saved are equal. Here's the problem with that. As a Christian person, I don't have an opinion on how somebody should get saved. I'm giving you God's opinion. It's not your opinion versus my opinion. It's your opinion versus God's opinion. And frankly, your opinion, nor will mine, ever stand up against God's. That's the moral truth. Does the Bible teach moral truth? Yes, it does. Faith in Jesus alone is the way for salvation. Number three, did Jesus Christ live a sinless life? Yes, he absolutely did. First of all, Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way that we were, but was still found sinless. So Scripture affirms it directly, but we can also 
understand his sinlessness from the logic of his salvation. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and then rose again three days later for your eternal life, then you have to believe that Jesus was sinless. Paul teaches us in Romans that the wages of sin or the cost of sin is death. If you sin, you deserve to die. So if Jesus had sinned, when he died on the cross, he would have been he would have been dying for his own sins, not our sins. But the fact that he was able to die for our sins is the logical evidence that we need to tell us that he lived a sinless life. It is imperative for us to understand Christ's sinlessness if we're going to be able to accept his free gift of grace that allows us to have our sins forgiven. Number four. Is God the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe, and does he still rule it today? I love this question because it addresses two very popular philosophical viewpoints that our culture has right now. And the first, is God the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe? In other words, where did this all come from? What is the origins of stuff? Where did the universe come from? Where did the earth come from? Where did people come from? Where did I come from and why am I here? The Christian viewpoint coming from Scripture is that God created it all, and he did so being all-powerful and all-knowing. So the Christian viewpoint has to be that God created it. Now, this question does not jump into the details of all of that as to when he created it, how he created it, the age of the earth, the age of the animals, those details are not in this question, and I understand that those also have uh, a need to be discussed, and if you would like those to be discussed in detail, you can send that question in to questions at donmckeg.com, and we'll hope to get that question featured on the podcast, but for right now, we simply have to settle with, did God make it all? Yes. The second part of that question, and does he still rule it today, this addresses something called deism. There are a lot of people that would agree that some deity out there set life into motion and then disappeared and has nothing to do with creation anymore. He is distant, or she is distant, or it is distant. It is, it is absent, and we're all here just wallowing in the muck on our own. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is very active in the course of human history, very active in the lives of believers. We have all kinds of examples in Scripture of God taking a vested interest in individuals' lives as well as the trajectory of an entire country. The mere fact that Jesus came to the earth to save us from our sins is all the evidence we need to say that God takes very seriously his interaction and his activity with humanity. So, no, it's not just that some deity flicked his finger and the earth started to spin and now he's gone. God is very active in the lives of his people. He knows the number of hairs that are on your head. He is looking after you to a better capacity than the birds and the grass. This is all in Scripture. Number five, is salvation a gift from God that cannot be earned? Well, Ephesians teaches that salvation is a gift of grace. We are saved by grace 
through faith so that none may boast. Ephesians teaches that. What this question is really trying to dive into is the misnomer that good people go to heaven. Well, I'm a good person. When I die, I'll go to heaven. Are you, though? Really? Really, are you a good person? How do you define, how did you decide that you are a good person? Because Jesus told the rich young ruler, none are good. A lot of people define goodness, or or they decide that they are good because they think that they are better than some of the people that they know. Maybe they at least stack up. You know, it's like, hey, I'm not killing anybody, I'm not stealing anything, I'm a good person. Well, that reminds me of when I was in high school. A lot of you will only know me by the sound of my voice, and you don't really have a good understanding of uh, my physical uh, makeup. But when I was in high school, I played football, American football. And uh, whenever the football team would run for some distance, a few miles, we're just doing the workout, regularly, I mean regularly, Maybe every time. I was like the second to last person. I'm slow. I'm a slow runner is what I'm trying to tell you. I wasn't the slowest, but I was the second slowest for sure. Well, if I'm using the definition of good running in the same way that you're using your definition of being good, simply because I'm faster than one person, I'm a fast runner. The fact that the entire rest of the football team, except one person, is faster than me is irrelevant. I'm faster than one person, therefore, I must be fast. This is how you think about your goodness. You're better than some people you know, so you must be good. Well, the real issue with that is that you are defining your goodness against people. And the Bible teaches us that we're all broken We're all rebels against God. We're all sinners. So, okay, you're good compared to a bunch of sinners. Great job. What we're supposed to do is compare our goodness to God's perfection. And when we all compare ourselves to God's perfection, all have fallen short of the glory of God, we'll find that we're all lacking. We're not good in and of ourselves. We are only able to be made good through Christ. Good people, quote-unquote, the way that others would define it, quote-unquote, good people go to hell all the time. Because that's the misunderstanding that a lot of people have about Scripture and what the scriptural message is. Being good is not your ticket to heaven. Confession and faith in Jesus is your ticket to heaven. And it's the only one that you need. It's sufficient. The good news is you don't have to necessarily be good, you just have to be in faith, and then Christ will remake you. I don't want to get lost there, but this question really is addressing, uh, can it be earned? No, it cannot. We, we, we receive it. We receive salvation through grace. Good people do not just automatically get to go to heaven without any kind of relationship or confession in Jesus. Number six, is Satan real? I remember 10-ish years ago, a while ago, there was a debate I want to say it was 60 Minutes or Nightline or something like that. But the question is, uh, is evil real? There were four people on the stage with a moderator, so five in total. Two people, one was a pastor and one was a lady that had like a paraministry for um, pulling ladies out of prostitution and sex work. They were saying, yes, 
Evil is absolutely real, and Satan is absolutely real as well. Scripture teaches us that. What Scripture teaches us that? Oh, I don't know, Genesis, whenever the snake is in the garden, uh, 1 Chronicles 21, whenever Satan tempts David, uh, maybe Matthew 4, when Jesus is being tempted by Satan, whenever Jesus says that Satan is the father of lies, really anything in Revelation after about chapter 7, He's clearly a figure in Scripture. Um, it's an undeniable thing. So then the question is, is Scripture right? So these two people were saying, yes, evil is absolutely real, and Satan is absolutely real. On the other side, the other two, one guy was like a a new age, just got a book deal kind of guy. He's an Oprah's book club. <clears throat> and he was saying, no, it's just ignorance. It's It's not really evil. But the other guy on his side saying that evil is not real and Satan is not real was a pastor of a church, a pastor of a church who was just willingly ignoring important sections of the Bible. I don't know why, but he did. And and this question really is relevant. Is Satan real? Because if he's not, well, then we can... We can just chalk evil up to ourselves or accidents or I don't know. But there really is an enemy. He really does want to do you harm. He really is actively trying to hurt you. Uh, and we need to be aware of that. Number seven. Remember, there's only eight of these, so there's two left. Does a Christian have a responsibility to share his or her faith in Christ with other people? Yes. We have some scriptures like Matthew 28, go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We have things like Paul telling us to be ready in season and out of season to give a reason for our faith. I will paraphrase this as well, but he's also saying, how can anybody believe if nobody preaches? And how can anybody preach if they're not being sent? There is an expectation in scripture that believers share their faith with people who are not believing yet. That's why Paul went on all of his missionary journeys. That's why churches were being started all of the time. That's why we celebrate people like uh, Philip or, or Stephen, because they were spreading the gospel around. And by the end of the first uh, 100 years or so of the church, the gospel had spread from Spain to India and across three continents. Why? Because they set the example that Christians should be sharing their faith. I say that to say this. One of the reasons, church, why we have so much trouble effectively sharing our faith with people is there's a fundamental flaw in many of our techniques. I feel comfortable using this as an example. It's as though somebody was coming to us saying that they were thirsty. We threw a water balloon at their faith, at their face rather, and now become incredulous that they didn't want anything to drink from us. It's they're saying, I'm thirsty. We throw a water balloon at their face and then wonder why they didn't take a drink. Here's what I mean the world is coming to the church asking us to help them find faith, and instead of helping them in a way that would actually be helpful, we use Scripture as a weapon, we judge people out of the church as they're struggling through sin, we make fun of people, we create enemies of people, we even, there are a lot of Christians right now 
who are ready to send to a fiery hell everybody that just voted differently than they do. Good heavens, what are we doing? When have we stopped loving our neighbors as ourselves? When, when have we stopped using kind words? When have we stopped giving an answer for our faith and decided that the whole world needs to burn because they're a little different than we are? We have to adjust this approach quickly. We can't keep throwing water balloons at people's faces and wondering why they're not taking a drink. Here's a better way, I will suggest... One of the things that we need to understand about humanity, first of all, is we're all in this together. The only two-party system that I see in Scripture is God and everyone else. There, we can decide that there's differences all that we want, but biblically speaking, it's God and us. So we got to help each other out here. And the way that God has made humanity, he designed us this way is to desire Him. We are created to desire God and a relationship with God. What sin has done is twisted those desires into desiring similar but different and destructive things. For instance, people don't actually want to have a series of one-night stands to feel loved. What they want is to know that there is a God who loves them unconditionally. People don't want to steal and rip other people off. What they want is to know that there is a providing God who will always look after them. People do not want to have hatred in their heart to people who have hurt them. What they want is is to know that there is a just God paying attention to what's happening on earth and will one day settle accounts with the evil. And we can continue to go down this list, but this is how we are wired, and as the church, we have the inside track on this. We can look at somebody and say, ah, I see that sin that you're struggling with. We probably shouldn't say this, this up front, but you can say, ah, I see that sin that you're struggling with. Well, did you know that there's a better expression for that? Did you know that you don't have to have all of these random hookups to try to feel validated? Jesus has already proven that he'll love you, and God will love you no matter how many times you mess up. Would you like to follow Jesus? And now when people are saying they're thirsty, we can give them an appropriate glass of water to drink that's helpful for them rather than trying to weaponize Scripture. I'm off the soapbox. I just needed to make my point. Here's number eight. Is the Bible accurate in all of its teachings? Yes, it is. The word that we like to use for this, there's two, is inerrant or without error and infallible. Inerrant and infallible. Now, within this particular discussion, again, if you'd like me to dive in deeper to the infallibility of Scripture, certainly can do that. Send your question to questions at donmckeg.com. But when, uh, when people talk about inerrancy of Scripture, somebody likes to get into the weeds of this and, uh, you know, go, well, you know, whenever you say inerrant, are you talking about, like, when it says 80 cubits that it's exactly 80 cubits or is it like could there be some centimeters added to the cubits because if that's the case and you're saying that scripture's inerrant then scripture's a lie and we have to just throw the whole thing off i don't know what accent that was but there it was 
And so they really just want to discredit scripture because somebody said, yeah, that's about 10 miles away. Well, is it exactly 10 miles or was it nine and a half? What if it was 11? Now the whole thing needs to be burned. Like, dude, chill out. <laughs> my, my perspective on inerrancy is this. There's absolutely times in scripture where the writer took a guess. It was about that far. It was about that long. It was close enough because the point of the story is not to create a math textbook. The point of the story is to tell you about what God did and how he did it with people. So the teachings of Scripture, are they good and accurate? Absolutely they are. Second Timothy actually teaches us this, that Scripture is good for all reasons of teaching and uh, correction and reproof. We can use this in all areas of our life. So those are the eight. That's the, that's the biblical justification for why all eight of these need to be answered with yes. Well, some of you might be thinking, gosh, I did not answer yes. And I still feel uncomfortable about answering yes for some of those. I, I see that they're in the Bible, but mm, I just I, I have this thought or I have this belief or what about this or what about that? Well, th there is an actual fight for our worldview. That's why some of us struggle. In fact, that's why 90% of us struggle is that there is a fight for our worldview, for our perspective on life. Because while Scripture does teach a clear perspective, literally everything else in our life is teaching us a different perspective. Music, movies and media, politicians, celebrities, literature, philosophy, it's all teaching, not all of it, all of it that's not rooted in Scripture and in Christ. The rest of it is is teaching us a worldview that is different than Scripture. And if we are unknowing or uncertain of biblical ideas, we might be influenced into believing false teachings. This is why I and your pastor try to convince you to read your Bible as much as we do. Because it's only in knowing Scripture can we have a scriptural, biblical worldview. We cannot conform the way that we think unless we know what the Bible actually teaches. If we're unknowing or uncertain of biblical ideas, we'll be easily tricked into having a false teaching. Another thing that we need to know about this fight for our worldview is that the biblical worldview and any other worldview cannot coexist. On the surface, it might seem like, it might seem like these things can coexist, but in reality, they cannot. As soon as you start to dive deeper into the philosophies that undergird whatever thing that you're thinking about, you'll find that they do not exist. I'll give you a cogent example. This is something that I'm seeing more and more of in our culture today. I even see it in the church, where Christian people are wanting to replace a phrase, like something has happened to your friend or someone you know. Instead of saying, hey, I'm praying for you, what we say is sending good vibes. I'm sending good vibes, good vibrations. Shout out to the Beach Boy fans. I'm not going to tell you that I'm praying for you, I'm going to tell you that I'm sending good vibes because on the surface, it seems like praying and having a good thought towards someone are similar enough. 
So I can just say good vibes and now I won't out myself as a Christian to all of my cool friends. Well, here's the issue when you start to dive into what good vibes means. Good vibes is based in a new age philosophy that says essentially this. The universe exists on a series of frequencies, vibrations. There are good vibrations and there are bad vibrations. One of the things that we should be trying to do to make the most out of life on this earth is to not only emanate good vibrations, but surround ourselves with good vibrations. And the more good vibrations that we surround ourselves with, the more the universe will get on frequency with us and begin to give us all of the things that we think we should have. The way that we trick the universe into being our genie in the bottle and giving us everything that our little hearts would ever desire is that we learn how to vibrate on the right frequency. So when we say I'm sending good vibrations to you, what we're saying is I am going to send a frequency your way that will force the universe into giving you something that you like. Conversely, there are bad vibrations, and these bad vibrations will attract negative things in your life. And now if we look at the whole of this, if I have a good thing in my life, it's because I've had good frequencies. I've attracted them. If I have bad things going on in my life, ah, I have had bad frequencies. I've attracted them, and the entire universe is now centered around us and our desires. It is forced to succumb to our will, and our works can now give us the kind of righteousness that we're looking for. I hope I pointed out enough scriptural tones to make my point. Prayer, however, has nothing to do with vibrations or frequencies. When I say I'm praying for you, it's I have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe and the king of this world. Hebrews tells me that I have the right to approach his throne with confidence, and so I'm going to go talk to him personally about you. I'm not going to leave this up to chance, hoping that I can get enough good vibrations sent your way to make you happy today. I'm going to go to the Creator God, the Master and King of all things. I'm going to go right into his throne room, and I'm going to talk to him about you. I hope you can see the difference between I'm going to pray for you, and actually doing it, by the way, and sending good vibes. And look, I'm not trying to be the fun police. I don't want to just kill everything. I'm just trying to point out that on the surface, there are things that we think are interchangeable and can coexist, but as we start to dive deeper into them, we will find they cannot. 2 Corinthians 6.14 actually asks the question, what has light to do with darkness? The answer is nothing. Now, don't start shunning people. Don't go live in a commune in the woods and try to live a monastic lifestyle or anything like that. Not that there's anything wrong with uh, monks. I have a high respect for them. But, but the idea isn't that we just shun the rest of the world. It's, it's that we need to be aware of worldviews so that we can maintain ours and help others adjust around Christ. So why does having a consistent worldview actually matter? Is it that big of a deal? 
We've pointed out that only 4% of the nation has a Christian worldview. We've gone through examples that would cause people uh, to not have a Christian worldview. I've already made the claim that the Christian worldview and any other worldview eventually cannot coexist, but does it actually matter? I think so, for three reasons. One, and as a pastor, this is actually pretty important to me, if you don't have a consistent Christian worldview, you're going to suffer in your life. You're going, life is going to be a lot harder for you. You will suffer without knowing how to live is the way that God wants you to live. Because look, there's this idea that doing things God's way is some kind of a concession and we're living a second-rate life and just things are going to be miserable and boring and awful. And I mean, goodness gracious, I don't know where, actually I do know where this viewpoint comes from. It comes back from question number six, is Satan real? Here's something. I hope this is helpful for you guys. This is why it's important that we know that we have a spiritual enemy, and we'll call him Satan. If I was the enemy of the church, I'm not, but if I was, and I knew that the number one weapon that the church had to look more like Christ and be more effective on the earth, if I knew that the number one weapon that the church had was the Bible. One of the first things I would do is create a rumor and spread it through all of my minions that everyone who reads the Bible is a narrow-minded, dumb bigot. That's how I would convince people to no longer read their Bible. Sure, God gave it to the earth as this amazing gift. Sure, people have died over the ability to maintain Scripture in their lives. Absolutely, it holds all kinds of untold keys to unlocking spiritual happiness and fulfillment, but somehow the rumor mill has convinced us that everybody who takes the Bible seriously is just a weak-minded, dumb bigot. So if you have the audacity to build an opinion based on Scripture, the rest of the world is now allowed to make fun of you because you're just a weak-minded, dumb bigot. I hope you can palatably feel my sarcasm. The enemy does not want you to read your Bible. He does not want you to develop a Christian worldview. He wants you to have broken and disjointed worldview perspectives. He doesn't want you to have a comprehensive understanding of how to live a powerful life in Christ so that your faith is never in question, so that your peace is never shattered, so that you find fulfillment in God and not needing to chase all of these idols that he's presenting in front of you. The last thing that the devil wants is for you to be able to develop a worldview and a viewpoint separate from him or anything that he would have for you. He doesn't want you going to God and having fulfillment there, and now there's this rumor that he said into the world that if you take the Bible seriously, you are a weak-minded, dumb bigot. And so now if you have this perspective and you're with your friends and you go, yeah, you know, the Bible says, you read the Bible? I thought you were so nice. I had no idea. You read the Bible? I had no idea you were a bigot. You, I thought we were friends. You read the Bible, but you're so smart. See how it goes? 
So our lives are eventually going to suffer because we don't know God's blessings. Number two, here's a reason to have a consistent worldview. Our witness to others about the goodness of Christ is going to suffer. I get a lot of people don't care about their witness. I also completely understand that that idea has been used as a weapon to manipulate people's actions. I don't care about manipulating your actions. I just got to call a spade a spade. And one of the reasons why you cannot convince your friends to come to church with you is because you think the exact same way that they do, except you spend an hour of your weekend at church. What about your life is compelling them that anything that you're doing or believe is better than what they're doing or believe? They don't want to wake up early on Sunday and they'd rather go play golf than go to church. So they're not going to go because literally everything else is the same. And you can't really refute that if you don't have a strong Christian worldview. You handle stress the way that they do. You handle inequality the same way that they do. You handle uh, finances the same way that you do. You have the same marital problems. You raise your kids the same way. You don't have a Christian worldview you, you think about the world the same way that somebody who's not a Christian thinks about the world, and so when it comes time for you to try to share your faith, and hopefully because you care about them, you don't want them to die to go in hell, die and go to hell, so you want them to be saved and have joy as well. Well, why? Why? Why should they do that? Look, here's the thing. I'm probably going to have my license taken away for this. That's not true. They can't take my license. But... If you read the Bible, if you read the Bible and make choices on what you are going to believe and what you are not going to believe, you are reading Scripture and deciding, yes, I will believe that. No, I don't think I'll believe that today. Or you are, or not even that aggressively, but you are, if you've ever caught yourself saying, I know what the Bible says, but... Here's the thing. Just stop reading the Bible. You're wasting your time. If you're going to go into Scripture already having the conclusions built in your mind, if you're going to spend time in the Bible and decide what part of it you're going to disagree with based on what you already believe, well, then quit reading it. What is the value of reading it? To reinforce ideas you already agree with, but to have other ideas that you don't like be denied? You're wasting your time. See, one of the reasons we read Scripture is to change the way that we think, to adjust the way that we think. That doesn't mean that it's easy. I mean, good grief. Do you think every single time I've ever read something in Scripture that disagreed with how I felt in that moment, I just thought, oh, good, I'm wrong again. Let's celebrate my wrongness. Do you think that I like reading? I think it's Proverbs 10, 13. All contention comes from pride, meaning if I ever get mad, it's my fault. Do you think I read that and go, wow, bust out the balloons. We're having a party today. No, there's absolutely things in Scripture, even very mature believers that have been doing it for 70 and 80 years will read and go, mm, ah, that's tough. But the idea is not for us to judge whether Scripture is good or not. It's that we read the goodness of Scripture and adjust the way that we think. So if you're reading Scripture and deciding, nah, I'm not going to believe that part, you're just wasting your time. I would encourage you to stop reading it altogether. Again, I hope that you are catching my sarcasm. Don't stop reading your Bible. Keep reading it and adjust yourself 
to it, that's one of the reasons we have it. Here's the third reason why having a consistent worldview matters. Church effectiveness will suffer. It's not just that your life will suffer. It's not just that your witness will suffer. The church's ability to help the culture suffers. I've been in ministry for about 15 years as the recording of this podcast, and uh, ever since I started, because this was like a part-time job that I had in college, that's when I started being a senior pastor, still at it, for 15 years, I've been the youngest Whenever like pastors get together at a conference or some kind of meeting for 15 years, I've been the youngest guy in the room. I've been the youngest guy in the room my entire ministry career. I'm hoping at some point I talk about celebrations. I will celebrate the day that I am not the youngest senior pastor in the room. It'll be awesome. I don't know when that'll happen, but at some point it will happen. And because I'm always the youngest guy in the room, I get to ask all of these seasoned saints about ministry, and I get all kinds of wisdom, but one of the things that I've heard for 15 years as the youngest guy in the room is that the church simply does not have the level of influence that it used to have. There was a time whenever the culture really was still being shaped by the church in a helpful and meaningful way, but now the church really doesn't have the kind of influence that it once did, and they say that in this begrudging way, but as I look out into the culture, I absolutely see why. If Christians do things the same way that everyone else does, we think about things the same way that everybody else does, only 4% of us are taking the Bible seriously, well, yeah. What kind of motivation does anybody have to come to the church? The answer would be none. They don't see any difference on how we handle crisis. They don't see any difference on how we handle disagreement. They don't see any difference on how we uh, stay married. Uh, they don't see any difference on how we raise our kids, how we are at work. They don't see any different. They, they don't see a Christian worldview. And so when it comes time for crisis and they need help, there's no reason for them to come to the church because the church thinks like everybody else. And so they're just going to keep doing what they've been doing, unfortunately floundering and suffering and not knowing that there's a better route for them. I'll end with sharing some scripture for you. Bible talks about this, surprisingly. Unsurprisingly, obviously. Romans 12, starting in verse 1, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what Paul is telling us right there is that our bodies and the way that we live, I present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That is our worship, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. How do we worship God? It's not singing on Sunday mornings. That might be part of it because it's how we're living, but we worship God by how we live. The quality in which we live our lives, that is our spiritual worship. Paul's hope for us is that we would prove our worship to be holy and acceptable to God. That we would live our lives in such a way that is both holy to reflect God, but something that God can accept. Because did you know God does not have to accept your worship? I'm not talking about losing salvation. I'm saying that the parts of your life that do not reflect holiness are unacceptable to God, and he will not accept them. He will only accept the worship that is due to him as the king of kings. How we live our life needs to be holy and something that God can accept. 
well, pastor, how do I get there? That's a big deal. I don't want my life to be totally unacceptable to God. How do I get there? Next sentence, do not be conformed to this world. Okay, how? But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How do we get our actions to a place where our lives are reflecting what's good and acceptable to God? By changing the way that we think so that we're not thinking like the rest of the world. When we say light has nothing to do with darkness, the idea behind that is that worship to an idol cannot also be worship to God. That living acceptable to an idol or a false ideology cannot equally be acceptable to God. We have to change the way that we think. It's an expectation of the Christian life. We don't just get to a point where we go, yeah, I'm done changing my mind. I'm set. I'm good. Just wanted the golden ticket to the Wonka factory. See in heaven, God. I'm not changing anything. No, no, no. No, we need to change the way that we think to reflect God because only by whenever our mind is transformed and we're no longer being conformed can our lives wholly reflect a holy and acceptable life that God can take on. Well, what happens as a result of that? Boring and no fun, right? No, no. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Well, what's the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? Again, we have this rumor that the enemy has started that if you do things God's way, life is going to be worse for you. No, no. If you're in God's will, you will be surrounded by things that are good, things that are acceptable, and things that are perfect. That's what it is to be in God's will. So when we transform the way that we think, letting Scripture do that, and our actions begin to change according to the truth of Scripture, and we're living in God's will, what we will find is what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. So what is a Christian worldview? Looking at the Bible the way Christ would want you to look at it. So that has been the church question for today. If you would like to have your question featured on the podcast, email it to questions at donmckeg.com. Until next time, be blessed, and we'll see you then. <laughs>